0: Psalms 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to seventy years or eighty if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants. His splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.
1: Thank you. Please do keep your Bible open there at Psalm 90, page 599. We'll be referring to it often. A rabbi once said that every person should carry two stones in their pocket. One stone should be inscribed with the words, For my sake, the world was created. And the other stone should have the words, I am but dust and ashes. And each stone should be pulled out, the occasion required, to remind us of who we are in God's creation. Now, this is a good example, a good illustration of the wisdom that we find in the book of Psalms. Today, we're finishing up a series on the Psalms that we've been doing over the summer. Some of the Psalms exalt human beings to a really high position in creation. They say we're kings and queens on God's earthly estate. On the other hand, our high position might tempt us to live uh, like fools and play God, as if we're the ones who are actually running the show. In that case, other psalms remind us that human life is fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. We're like fireflies. Have you ever seen them? They just come out at the dusk, they burn briefly, and then we're gone. We are very frail uh, and earthly creatures, made from dust and returning to dust. Now, in light of that, there is a question that dominates our lives, and it controls a lot of our behavior. In fact, I think we are haunted by it, though most of the time we don't even acknowledge this question or even think about it. And it's this, how can I live well? This question, how can I live well? How can I live well? We're all concerned with this issue. If you're a committed Christian here today, or you're a person from another faith background, or if you're just a curious skeptic, you don't really know if you've got faith. Your life is shaped by the answer you give to this question. How can I live well? And Psalm 90 gives us the answer. To live well is to know God and to know ourselves as we really are. And the psalm gives us three Perspectives, three perspectives on this question. And I've got to warn you now, it's not going to tell you what you want to hear, but it is going to tell you what you need to hear. And if we can grasp these three perspectives and apply them to our hearts, we can learn to live well. The first one is eternity and brevity, a contrast. Eternity and brevity. The second is a confession, wrath and sin. And the third is a comfort. Grace and gladness. Eternity and brevity, wrath and sin, and grace and gladness. So firstly, look with me again at verses 1 to 4. Eternity and brevity. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 4 A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. This psalm begins with an address to God as Lord. Lord, here, with not in capital letters, is a title of great majesty. It's used for kings and sovereigns. And here, the writer, Moses, ponders God's existence, God's eternity. God has always existed, and He always will. There never was a time when he was not. He is the one constant in a universe of change. Now, how can we get our heads around this? I uh, asked one of the scientists in this church, and he said, you know, you could contrast God with current estimates about the age of the universe. Scientists calculate or reckon that the universe is 13.8%. Billion years old. I don't know how they come out with something so accurate. 13.8 billion years old. Now, a billion is a lot to get your head around, isn't it? If that was scaled down, so on a scaled down version, a scaled down calendar, to just one year, what would have happened during the year? So, the moment of creation, some people call it the Big Bang, the moment of creation is the start of the year, the 1st of January. And that's the beginning. But the Milky Way, doesn't actually appear until the 12th of May. And our own solar system doesn't show up until the 2nd of September. Dinosaurs come just in time for Christmas, the 25th of December. And human beings only develop agriculture on the 31st of December at 18 seconds to midnight. We haven't been around very long. John McPhee is an award-winning journalist. He's won the the Pulitzer Prize in the States, a very eminent journalist. And at one time in his career, he he made some journeys across America with some very uh, eminent geologists. And he talks about human time. And in order to uh, illustrate this quote, I'm going to use this ruler I've brought from home. So where, where does human time fit on the ruler of geological time. McPhee says this, when a volcano lets fly, or an earthquake brings down a mountainside, people look upon the event with surprise and report it to each other as news. People in their whole history have seen comparatively few such events, and only in the past couple of hundred years have they begun to sense the patterns the events represent. Human time regarded in the perspective of geological time is much too thin to be discerned. It is the mark invisible at the end of the ruler. If geological time could somehow be seen in the perspective of human time, the sea level would be rising and falling hundreds of feet all the time. Ice would come pouring over continents and as quickly go away. Yucatans and Floridas would be under the sea one moment and underwater the next. Oceans would swing open like doors. Mountains would grow like clouds and come down like melting sherbet. Continents would crawl like amoebae. Rivers would arrive and disappear like rain streaks on an umbrella. Lakes would go away like puddles after the rain. And volcanoes would light the earth as it were a garden full of fireflies. At the end of the program, man shows up, his ticket in his hand. Almost at once, he conceives of private property and life insurance. When a volcano assaults his sensibilities with an ash cloud 11 miles high, he writes a letter to the Times recommending that the mountain be bombed. Psalm 90 says, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God predates all of that geologic time. There is no measuring his eternity. He sees the whole of time in an instant. Now, that's eternity. Just contrast this for a moment with us, our lives. They can be summed up with the word brevity. Verse 3 You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by the evening it is dry and withered. Verse 3 says that we are dust. The Bible begins with the story of creation, and it talks about how God makes the whole of the cosmos in an orderly fashion, and he makes it beautiful and good. And he then, there's the crown of creation, he makes human beings, but he makes them from the dust of the ground, just to remind us of where we've come from. And when human beings revolt against God and rebel against him and are pushed out of his his presence and out of the life that he gives, he says, you will return to dust. We're held together by God's sustaining power. Our lives, our whole lives are really a struggle against disintegration. If you're over 40, you'll be particularly aware of what I'm talking about. A struggle against disintegration. Have you ever thought where all the dust comes from in your house? You know, I looked this up on our reliable friend, the internet. A lot of dust comes from outside, especially in an old house. Some of it comes from inside. Some dust comes of of fibres that come out of uh, fabric, like curtains and carpets and sofas. But do you know the other source of household dust? is you, dead skin, regularly shed by human beings. So when you are vacuuming, you're really hoovering up yourself. (laughs) Now, verses 5 and 6 make this comparison. He says, we're like the new grass of the morning. Now, this writer, Moses, isn't thinking about British grass, which is pretty tough, you know, it's there all year round. Uh, you can even play football on it. He's thinking about grass in the desert or the wilderness in the ancient Near East, in a hot, dry climate. Travellers tell that when there's a sudden downpour of rain in those kind of climates, an area that looks like, like the desert can suddenly turn green overnight. Grass just springs up out of nowhere and flowers come up, and then the sun beats down on them during the day, and they burn up and they wither away. It's so fresh and new in the morning. And then by evening, it's dry and withered. And he says, that's what we're like. That's what we're like. You sprang up new in the morning. My sister just had a baby today at 5.40 a.m. Kimberly Grace Stokes, fourth baby. A little new life came into the world this morning. And yet by evening, we're dry and withered. If your life is a day, what time is it for you? I just had a sabbatical this summer. I've been thinking about these things as I stared at the Mediterranean. What time is it for me? I think it's after lunch. (laughs) I might be heading towards tea. For some of us, we're definitely in the afternoon, aren't we? Maybe the evening. And we don't know how long we have. Yesterday, we were visiting my mother-in-law, my my wife's family. My mother-in-law is 73 today, and so we visited for the day to celebrate her birthday with her. And we were driving back from Bristol last night. We got on the junction for the M5 motorway. And on our side of the motorway, it was absolutely clear. No cars at all. And believe me, you never see this on the M5. Absolutely clear on our side. That's funny, we thought. Later on, we discovered that just a bit back from where we were, a lorry had crashed through the central reservation further down the road. And it had ploughed into some cars. One of the cars was totally destroyed. And at least four people have now died. And you know what I thought? It could have been us. It could have been us. We don't know how long we have. We spring up like grass in the morning and then by evening we're withered. And that is the first perspective that we need if we're going to live well in life. It's a contrast God's eternity and our brevity. Now, <clears throat> the Bible writers don't just make this contrast and then sort of sigh and say, well, <laughs> it's just the way it is, you know, that some things will never change. They actually offer a diagnosis. They actually, Bible writers constantly argue that there is a cause for death. Remember I said, this isn't what you want to hear, but it is what we need to hear. The Bible says that death is not what we were made for. It says this world is not as it should be. And I think in our saner moments, we know that, don't we? When we're confronted with the terrible loss and grief of death, we don't just think, oh, it's just the way it is. Something inside us revolts against it. Something probably screams out, what went wrong? And this is where the Bible is going to get really uncomfortable for us, because it's on a collision course with our culture. It's not going to tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. The second perspective that the psalm gives us is of God's wrath, his anger, and our sin. Wrath and sin. Look with me again at verse 7 to 11. Verse 7 <clears throat> We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great. As the fear that is your due, these verses say that the ultimate cause of death, the ultimate cause, is that God is angry. It uses this word wrath, which means extremely angry, not just a bit cross and a bit narky and ticked off. It means uh, extremely angry. Now, when we talk about anger, we often um, imply or we think of somebody who has lost self-control. Or they've had an outburst of bad temper. We think of people losing it and having a temper tantrum. We think of road rage. We usually think about anger as a weakness, and it often is. Anger is rightly considered one of the seven deadly sins. But there is such a thing <coughs> excuse me, as righteous anger. If you, if you see uh, the facts of human trafficking, if you see the facts of, of uh, adults predatory adults who groom children on the internet. If you see the fact of thieves in a calculated way robbing old age pensioners, doesn't it make you angry? Shouldn't it? See, there is a right kind of anger. And the Bible says there is such a thing as righteous anger, and God, who never ever sins, is angry at sin all of the time. He's not just in a bad mood. It's a constant, not a flare-up of bad temper, it's a settled, constant disposition towards sin. It's a perfect, righteous anger that he feels about it. So what is this sin that I'm talking about? How can you define it? Sin is any violation of God's law, any failing or falling short of his perfect standards. We confessed it earlier. The, the, the bad that I've done and the good that I've failed to do. Now in Psalm 90, we have two different words used. In verse 8, we have the word iniquities. You've set our iniquities before you. That's used of immoral behavior or just being grossly unfair. And in verse 9, it says that our secret sins, sorry, verse 8, our secret sins are in the light of your presence. These secret sins literally it means hidden things. Uh, God sees them. Things that we're ashamed of and we have hidden. Now, none of us enjoys thinking about ourselves as a sinner. We like to think we're okay, pretty decent. And we can always find someone worse than ourselves to compare ourselves with. But let me ask you one question about your secret sins. The things that you know and maybe no one else does. If all your secret sins were projected on this screen using video technology... Would you wait to the end of the service? In fact, would you be able to look us in the eye again? We think there's secret. It says here that God has set our secret sins before the light of his presence. There's nothing in the dark with him. He sees everything. But here's the thing. You're not alone in this. All of us are in it. We are all sinners. And therefore, the Bible says we're all under God's wrath. Earlier this summer, I was driving to Spain with my uh, third son, fourth child, Ted. He was a brilliant road trip buddy, and we were driving through the heat, and the sunshine was wonderful. And then, in the, uh, up ahead, we could see a cloud uh, 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 that was so grey and dark and heavy. It was like it was hanging, weighing over the sky. And I thought. Whoa, something is coming up here. And as we drove into it, we experienced the worst storm I've ever been in. And we were driving. Well, we weren't driving for long. We had to pull over to the side. We were just deluged with rain. It was hanging over. And then a little bit later, we drove out of it and back into the sunshine. Everything dried up. It was astonishing. So the Bible says that God's wrath, his anger against sin, is is it's kind of hanging there all the time and we're all under it. Romans chapter 1 is probably the best description. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's being revealed from heaven. It's a settled state of affairs. The wrath of God is hanging over us like a storm cloud. And we're all sinners here. People think Christians think they're self-righteous. That is the biggest mistake. Christians, you start by being a Christian by admitting you're not righteous. Now you might be a very religious sinner here. You may be a very religious sinner, or you might be an irreligious sinner. Thank you very much. Uh, You may be fully aware of what God requires. You might have been raised on the Bible, or you may have no idea. This could be, for someone here, the very first day you've been in a church service. Uh, You know what? In the eyes of the law, ignorance is no excuse. On that same road trip, I was preparing to go on the trip, and uh, I knew I needed to have a sticker on the back of the car that says GB, Great Britain. You've got to have that on the back of your car if you're driving in the continent. Um, I also knew that you have to drive on the other side of the road. Someone told me that. Now, those were two aspects of French law that I was aware of. And one week before we were due to go, a friend of mine said, do you know about the other laws to do with driving in France? No. Well, have you got a full set of light bulbs? No. What about a high visibility jacket that is accessible from your seat? No, haven't got one of those. What about a warning triangle? Nope. Some stickers to put on your headlights. No. And uh, you need not one but two breathalyzer kits. Really? Is that so? (laughs) And he took me down to Halfords. God bless Halfords. We bought the whole thing in one kit for 25 quid. But his point was this. If the French police stop you, they will fine you 200, 500 euros on the spot. And saying I didn't know about it is no excuse because it's the law of their country. They want their country to be safe. These are the things they've uh, put in place. So as we all live in God's world, we're all under his law. And the essence of God's law is not that you need a high-vis jacket and some light bulbs, but that you need love. Jesus himself summed it up like this. Here's, here's the heart of all the law of God, right? Just two things. That's all you've got to do. Love The Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as much as yourself. That's all you need to do. All the law of God hangs on these two commandments. But here's here's my problem. By my nature, I'm inclined to hate God and my neighbor when they get in my way. And according to the Bible, the result of all this is death. That section there uh, makes the link. We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation because you've set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. God's judgment on sin, God's verdict, is that it deserves the death sentence, which is a natural consequence of revolting against the source of life. God is within his rights to do it, isn't he? He gave us life in the first place. He sustains our lives even now. Without him, we are dust now notice, it's very interesting, this psalmist doesn't draw some kind of tight link, some sort of cause and effect link between uh, certain sin and death. It doesn't go there. It's not like if you do this, you'll suddenly be zapped and fall dead on the spot, you know, bolt of lightning. It doesn't work like that. But there is a relationship between sin and death. Here we learn that uh, part of God's judgment on us is that we have a loss of powers. We have a reduced lifespan. It says our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. You new students here, you probably think 70 is old, don't you? Let me tell you, I'm 46. 70 doesn't look that old anymore. 80 if you're strong. We've got some strong older people in this church, but they will tell you that the strength starts to go. After the age of 60, most of your muscle tone turns to fat. Some of us have got a head start on it. And the loss of our permanence, and, and, and there's also a loss of meaning. T.S. Eliot ends one of his poems with these words. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. It's Just like this psalm. The best of our days are but trouble and sorrow. We finish our years with a moan. Two perspectives if we're going to live well. The first one was eternity and brevity. God is eternal. We're brief. The second one is wrath and sin. God is angry, we're sinful. And that all leads up to verse 12. This is an amazing verse. Look at this. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, teach us to number our days. Have you ever numbered your days? I hadn't done this until yesterday. And now I have. I added up my days. I was born on the 6th of February 1971. There have been 12 leap years during my lifetime. Today is the 17th of September, isn't it? Yes. I have numbered my days, and they are 16,996. That means that on Wednesday, if I live that long, I will have been alive. I will have had 17,000 days next Wednesday. So you're all invited to come to our house. And I hope that my wife, Melissa, will bring out a big cake with 17,000 candles on it. One for each of those days. And I will blow them all out with one breath and then just die on the floor. 17,000 days. You know what? It doesn't seem that many. It doesn't seem that many. How many of them can I afford to waste? How many have I got left? How then should I live? How can I live well? Now Moses, this psalm writer, maybe, speculate for a moment, maybe wrote this in old age. Certainly has the wisdom of age. He turns his reflections on eternity and brevity, on wrath and sin, and he turns it into this prayer. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a wise heart. He says, ask God to make you wise before your time. Determine not to waste your life and fritter it away, because soon it will be too late. And a wasted day, you know the thing about a wasted day, you never get it back. Students here, listen. I went to university in 1990. We did have color television, by the way. What an opportunity you have in these years of education to make the most of your time or to waste it. The choice is yours, but one thing is for sure, you will never get a wasted day back. International students and visiting academics, may I speak to you? You are here today. You're probably here because you came for education in this great city, but you know you are actually here here by divine appointment because God brought you to this place today for a higher reason than just to get a degree, but to find him. Will you listen to his voice in the Bible and ask him to give you a a wise heart? All of us here, we are dust, and to dust we will return. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to meet your maker? Because if we fail to face up to sin and death, we're out of touch with reality. However, the psalm doesn't end there, verse 12. It doesn't end on that sobering note. There's more. There's actually a change of tune. It changes from a blues to a kind of upbeat rock anthem. Because the psalm writer knows God. He's already hinted at it back in verse 1 when he said, You are our dwelling place. You're the only home we really have, the only secure place, the only refuge. But now he cries out to God again, and it is really wonderful. Look, look with me at this again. Page um, Page 600. Psalm 90, verse 13. Look at the change of tone here. Relent, Lord. There's Lord in capital letters. That's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Listen to these these requests. Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad. For as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And here is the third and final perspective that we need to live well. Remember them so far? Eternity and brevity, wrath and sin. Finally, grace and gladness. Grace and gladness. You see, this um, perspective is a great comfort. It is this, that the eternal, holy God is also a God of grace. He knows everything about you, and still, he loves you. And he isn't simply interested in forgiving you, although that's a big enough thing. He's also interested in you flourishing. He doesn't just want to make you holy, he wants to make you happy. He's not only concerned with justice, but with joy. What a God he is. A God of grace and gladness. And Moses knows this. He's seen it in his lifetime. So he he turns to God in verse 13, and very boldly, he says, Relent. It can be translated, return. Turn Turn back to us again. Turn back, Lord. He's praying here with the confidence of one who knows God, knows what God is like, knows his character. And he makes these seven bold requests, Have compassion. Satisfy us so that we sing for joy. Make us glad. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May your favor rest on us and establish the work of our hands. What a wonderful list of requests. They cover the present and the future. They cover ourselves and our family. They cover the work of our hands and the feelings of our hearts and souls. He asks not just for sins to be forgotten, but for satisfaction to be given. Not just for pardon, but for joy, for favor, and for a meaningful life, a life that counts, he asks God to establish the work of our hands. You see, the third perspective that we need if we're going to live well in this world is that although our life is brief and we are sinners, God is a God of grace, and he wants to make us glad. He wants to make us glad, and perhaps for some of you here, Gladness went out of your life some time ago. Maybe you feel like you've been staring into the dark for quite some time. The lights have gone out. Uh, And that may have to be for some time. I know that these things don't change overnight. But I do know this, that God loves to hear people pray to him like this, to say, relent, Lord, how long will it be? Make me glad again. Have you ever prayed that? How can we make this kind of bold request to the eternal one? Certainly not on the basis of our own performance or track record. You know, there's not a hint of that here. But only on the basis of the character of God himself. Look at verse 14. There's a little word here in the Hebrew language I want to uh, share with you. It says in our, in our version, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love and the word underneath unfailing love the English translators really struggle with because it's so rich it's hard for them to translate it the word is chesed chesed and it means God's kindness his mercy to the miserable his his, his, uh, undeserved love and especially it means God's loyalty, his loving loyalty to the promises he's made to his people. This word is used when God makes a promise to love people. He made a promise to love people in the Old Testament to Israel, that he would put his love on them, his chesed, his faithful love. And also in the New Testament, he promises the church of Jesus Christ, his love is upon you. So you can come and plead with God on the basis of this word. Show us your chesed. Because you were just asking him to be true to who he is. He's a God of grace to the undeserving, and he keeps his promises. All right. Final thought. There's one thing that we know that Moses didn't. Even, even great Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's this. How far is God prepared to go to keep his promises? How far is God prepared to go to keep his promise that he will love his people? Our psalm ends really with a mystery, doesn't it? You know, a God of justice who sees all the sin of the world and humanity. How can he love people like this? How can uh, that somehow be reconciled that God would be able to be just and yet accept and welcome and love sinners? There's no real answer here. It's left as a mystery. Moses didn't know the answer. But you can because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question, how far is God prepared to go to keep his promise, to show his love to you? And the answer is, he'll go to death on a cross. Let's pray. I'm going to actually read three prayers from a a psalm devotional. Lord, life is going by so fast, it frightens me. Unless I remember your eternity. We are as rootless as tumbleweeds and will be blown about all our lives unless you are our dwelling place. In you, we are home. What I have in you, I can never lose and will have forever. I praise you for this unfathomable comfort. Amen. Lord, I have not done the profound soul work necessary to be ready to die. Give me the strength to ask the big question, would I be ready to die tomorrow? Be such a living, bright reality to me that I can answer that question wisely and then do what is necessary. Amen. Lord, once your love takes hold of me, even death can only bring me closer to you. I love you for loving me like that. Amen. Amen.